enter if you dare this ghastly conversation of teens fraught with despair and recent lacerations final girl chase after her don't let her get away but first the slumber podcast massacre Slumber Podcast Massacre with TNA. That's Tim. That's Andy. (laughs) This is a podcast about horror. Every week or so, Tim and I are going to jump in and we're going to talk about a different film in the horror movie genre from the well-revered classics to that dark and dusty and mysterious gem at the back of your video store shelf. This week, Tim and I are talking about the 1987 slasher sequel slumber party massacre part two tim the question i'm going to ask you is a little different not movie specific but since we're kind of coming back from a hiatus i kind of wanted to take this opportunity to maybe we've never really like laid out laid out what this podcast is but we're not we haven't really laid out why this podcast is uh and i don't think it's anything monumental or groundbreaking but i know we each probably have our own personal reason for wanting to do this and being excited about doing it so my question to you this time is why are you doing this podcast Mm. yes and that's a fantastic question surprise Um, and uh yeah you know i and i can tell you exactly um and I'd like to think that we covered this at some point, but but if we didn't, here we go. We never really did like a mission statement kind of thing. Right. I think well, we talked I, vaguely about our backgrounds, but that's about it. But go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Now, so, you know, growing up, I, I've loved horror movies ever since I was a little kid. Um, and I won't go into that too much other than to say it started when I was five, literally five. So... Um, I, I went through a certain time period, especially in middle school, where I uh, was watching a lot of horror films. That's actually the time period where I watched most of the movies that, that we've covered so far. And then there was just a long stretch where I, I didn't quite have the same uh, group of people around me that were as interested in horror. And um, it kind of just became uh, something to enjoy on my own. And then there was a night uh, that you and sweet sweet mega fan mikey z were over at my place and we were watching the slumber party massacre and i think i started saying something i was kind of pontificating on i believe it was uh the importance of youth in uh horror and you were listening and i i think you just sort of instinctually picked up on on the passion that, that I had for this genre. And it was, I know that it was a genre that, that you were passionate about as well, but I think something just clicked in you when you heard me talking about that and you said, you know, we should do a podcast. And so that, that was this, the simple and beautiful genesis of the whole thing. But why I keep doing it more, more specifically to, to your question um. I think that especially in, in the world that we're in right now, kind of in the throes of, of the virus and, and COVID, that I see a lot of artistic venues and uh, artistic opportunities not available to a lot of people uh, who it's their, their biggest passion in life. And 
what worries me is that like anything else in life, the, the further you get distance away from something, the less that it's on your mind and the less that you care about it. And your mind might even adapt to, to the point that it tells you that that's not even important to you anymore. Right. And that's a really, that's a future that I, I don't want to happen. <laughs> I, I want everybody for as despondent as they may feel about where we're at in the world right now. And that some of those artistic venues, most of them are not available to us. I don't want us to forget our passions and forget the things that we love doing and forget the, the pieces of art that inspire us so greatly. So by doing this podcast, um, especially now, it kind of keeps alive that that thirst for creativity and, and the appreciation of it. Very good answer. Damn, that's way better than my answer, which is just uh, kind of curious about him. <laughs> watch a lot of these movies when I was a kid. So it's like, what a great opportunity to, to watch them now. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you want to watch these movies. I mean, it's not, that, that is a very, that is I know base way to say it, but it's true. Like, I mean, me personally, I didn't grow up watching a lot of them. I, I was interested in them and I had my own runs like nightmare on Elm street. I was obsessed with. So like that series, it was like, that was the crack that got through my parents. Like Freddy Krueger was allowed, but uh, not that my parents were some sort of like totalitarian dictators, but you know, it was not really uh, can I watch this? No, you can't, you know, or it was that. Um, and then once I got to the age where that was readily accessible to me, like in high school, then I was on to like, oh, I'm sorry. I only watch like uh, Kubrick and Scorsese and stuff. So I still got, you know, I still got some horror in, but I was very into prestige, snooty ass filmmaking then. And the, the, the look of a horror movie was beneath me at that point. But now I'm getting back to the age um, where I have seen all the prestige movies I really want to see uh they kind of are tiring to be now like if i see something is a huge oscar bait epic i'm like oh good (laughs) i'm sure it's at least two and a half hours like that i'm like where are the movies that are 90 minutes and here they are yeah this like all of them genre. yeah <laughs> yeah almost all of them we, yeah we will cover some that are much longer and those are those get into your prestige like clockwork orange that we did like, yeah sure yeah um but yeah so excellent so that's my answer to that question no one asked and speaking of speaking of no i'm I'm glad to hear it and i i like it being that straightforward because i like to think that maybe we have listeners that you know i, I like to think that we have some that absolutely live and die by horror and we i hope that we have some that are like i i don't know much about it but i'm kind of curious about it yeah, so yeah i think we offer both ends of the spectrum here because i i mean i don't want to say i'm a poser i'm not in any way going to claim that i'm some sort of horror movie expert i do think i am very knowledgeable about film uh and i like talking about movies uh so it's you know i i feel like it comes naturally to me to watch a movie and talk about it but in no way would i be like oh yes i've been a horror fan my whole life i've been interested like when we went to rent movies i would stand in as i would get my you know fucking weird science immediately and then (laughs) go and look at the boxes in the horror section and just like the 
just the ideas that I would get off of just those boxes were terrifying to me. Um, which now in retrospect, the movies aren't half as scary as what I made up in my mind. Like Chopping Mall at the time was like, what a horrific adventure this might be. What a pleasant romp that movie is, you know? So, <laughs> so yeah, I think we, uh, I think we offer a lot. We do. And, and it, to pat now ourselves on the back here. But. Yeah. But I, I, I like to think it's a broad spectrum, which is yeah. good. Speaking of kind of uh, a, a nice brush up on things, um, and this is a, a really quick explanation, but I know we rattle off the term Nan's summary mm-hmm. um, very, very quickly. Um, Nan being short for Nancy. Yeah. And what, what again was the, the genesis? Uh, what was the beginning of, of Nan's summary? Oh, it was, you know, she she would listen to the podcast and then she'd be like, you're talking about this movie, but I am not watching it. I haven't watched it. I don't know what this movie is about. And it's like, Oh yeah, maybe. Cause I do have movie podcasts. I listen to where I'm not going to watch every movie they cover, but I like the way they cover a movie. So it is a little important to at least know a general idea of what the movie is about. So when you start talking about uh supernatural rockabilly uh, guys, you you at least have an idea like, oh, that's what it's supposed to be. Like, that's not just something they're making up. Right. Exactly. And so what would be, if you had to give, oh, man's summary in. for this Well, movie? have we even... Uh, okay, yeah. So it's 1987. Slumber Party Massacre Part 2. Here's Nan's summary. Um, Courtney, a survivor from the original Driller Killer Murders, uh, is now a senior in high school and she goes to a little retreat uh, at a condo with her friends slash bandmates for uh, rehearsal and a little uh, hanky-panky with the boyfriends. But in the meantime, she's been having visions, haunting visions of a new uh, hypersexualized version of the killer she witnessed and eventually manifests it, and then she must save herself from the own terror she has created. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, when you say it like that, it's one of, one of the biggest things that people walk away from uh, or, or that they react to with this movie is just how, you know, we don't hear this word nearly enough anymore. How zany this movie is. It is zany. <laughs> And, and, but you know, that explanation right there makes it, makes it, you know, that much more concise and, and truthfully for as, as wild and zany as this movie is, um, I do think that there, there is a little bit of linear logic that can create the bridge that gets us to this wild movie that, that we have before us. Um, and as we always say, we'll get to that in just a bit. (laughs) Um, so talking about a little bit about the background of this movie, it's, this is also very straightforward. This, um, is, this was a hard movie to research. I'm going to say that right now. This was near impossible. There is <laughs> shit on this movie. It's true. Um, and the thing is, it's, it, it's so different than what we usually research because usually there's, there's drama and there's legality and there's all of these, these things that make up this, you know, um, 
illustrious backstory to how these movies came to be. And this isn't the case for this movie at all. And, and a big part of that is the fact that it's uh, produced by Roger Corman and Roger Corman wasn't one for a lot of uh, fussiness or fanciness. Uh, he just liked to get right to the point and make movies real quick, cheap and dirty. And, uh, and he was successful with it. Yep. So, Roger Corman has this underling by the name of Deborah Brock. Deborah Brock is from Texas, um, kind of started the same way that a lot of us do, making movies, goofing around with a camera when our, we're in our teenage years. Sure. Um, she moves from Texas to California. She goes to UCLA. She studies film. She is now in sort of the kind of, it's almost like a commune that Roger Corman assembled of like these young up and coming filmmakers and actors and actresses who would do anything in the world under any circumstances to make these movies. So Deborah Brock is one of those people and Roger Corman goes to her and Roger Corman had had some success with the first film, Silver Party Massacre, and he wanted to do a sequel. So what really started this thing off is that he kind of spread the word to some overseas investors. And by spread the word, I mean, he just said the words slumber party massacre two. And for whatever reason, just that idea of a sequel and that title just got people really excited. And they're like, okay, bam, take my money, you know, thousands of dollars, but not a lot of money, but enough to, to give the project some life. So they've got lots of money from investors. And on top of that, now this this part's kind of interesting. He had sort of consolidated all of the projects that he had done in the past, and he created a production house, a production company called New Concord. And what was special about New Concord is that they were the first, one of the absolute first production companies to say, what if we just made movies and released them direct to video? Oh. Like that con that concept was almost completely unheard of. Oh but they're God. like, we... That guy we don't got have a raise. <laughs> right. Yeah, he was he was definitely on to something. <laughs> and, um, you know, you could make movies for cheap. You could release them for cheap. Um, people could rent them for cheap. It was it was just, a, you know, hand over fist money making venture that, that he was really um, at the beginning of. So all the groundwork is laid. Everything is in motion for this thing to happen. He approaches Deborah Brock. He says, hey. I know you want to direct. I've got a movie for you. Slumber Party Massacre 2. Let's go. She says, awesome. Great. Where's the script? (laughs) And he said, there isn't one. You're going to write it. So he gave her complete artistic control over writing the script. Oh, so she didn't come to him with, here's my idea. He was just like, I want to do it. Do it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he, he came to her and said, I've got, you know, uh, whatever, you know, a thousand, you know, Frenchmen and Italians and whoever else he was getting money from that loved the idea of this. And they want to give us money and we want to do this. And all you have to do is write the script. And, and I mean, he didn't give any guidelines already. Thank God. This is your favorite movie. Cause you've been researching this movie for 20 years. <laughs> right. Right. True. That's true. Yeah. So that, but you know, the, the funny thing is there's really not any more background than that. Okay. She, she, she took it and she said, okay, I could do whatever I want. 
Would so you now, beef up the Wikipedia page for everyone else, please? <laughs> yeah, there's got to be something out there. <laughs> yes, I could do a Wikipedia page purely based on the beginnings of Slumber Party Massacre 2. That's what the world really needs right now. Yeah. Um, so here's, here's your question. Here's, here's the question that might be on everybody's mind right now. They're like, okay, cool. Like that, I get that backstory. So how in the world do we go from what was a relatively straight ahead slasher film with the original Slumber Party Massacre? How do we end up with some rockabilly leather clad killer with a guitar and a, and a drill on the end of it? Yeah. So I'm going to give you a little bit of fact mixed, mixed with speculation. Okay. And I, I think it'll all make sense. So the year is 1987, right? MTV is at its absolute height. It's no longer a fledgling network, you know, left of the dial on your, your cable box. It is a, a powerhouse in the music industry. In fact, it is the number one way to market any band or any singer or any musical act. Yeah. So it's hugely uh, culturally influential. And not only that, but one of your biggest bands of 1987 is the all-female group, the Bangles, uh, who had several singles. Now, oh, yeah. they, were touted, they were touted as the female Beatles. That might have been taking oh, things. Oh, what? Uh, <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> them being called that. <laughs> maybe, maybe they were taking it a shade too far. Who maybe it was that guy did not get a raise, whoever said that. Maybe my fandom got the best of me when I was the one that said it, but um, but anyway, yeah, they they were These girls wildly have two popular. hits. They could be the next Beatles, <laughs> and uh, and you know it's it's something to where uh, the the world was was excited about girl bands. Sure, <laughs> maybe not as excited as I was, but um, but it was uh, the groundwork was laid. So now here's here's where I think I'm really onto something. A slumber party is not made up of 20 girls, right? right. It's not like it's not like 30 girls. It's it's a, a small group, let's say four to five. Yeah. So in the first movie, you had those four to five girls united by the fact that they were all on the basketball team, which makes perfect sense. The varsity basketball team, let's not forget. The, yes. And boy did it show. <laughs> Um, so <laughs> wait, that's can I do a real quick tangent? Cause I, watched, yeah, yeah. I watched the first one again and prep for this. Cause my, my daughter wanted to watch the first one. So she had context for the second one. And I picked up something I never picked up before when they're finishing their basketball practice, which is horrendous. And she's like that last week of basketball next week, we start baseball. <laughs> <laughs> Which I've never really picked up on before. So do the do all these girls then become part of the varsity girls baseball team? Does any school have a girls baseball team? Well, and and furthermore, if it was the end of the season, are we to believe that that was them at their peak powers? Right, exactly. <laughs> that looked like you've tryouts. Been, you've been playing all season, and this is what we get. Um. Anyway, so go ahead. Anyway. So, yes. So um, that's the binding agent of the first film. So now I, I haven't heard Deborah Brock, the, the writer and director, come right out and say this, but I'm guessing that as she's sitting there, you know, uh, paper and pen in hand, 
wondering how she's going to put this movie together, you might say, okay, I don't want to do something exactly like the first film. What's another way that I can have a group of, let's say, four to five girls? And with MTV being so popular, with female bands being so popular, maybe it was a natural conclusion to say, hey, let's do a girl group. Let's do a girl band. So all of a sudden, you've got this reason for these girls to be so tight-knit. And in addition to that, um, you've got a lead character who is a member of this band who is, as you mentioned earlier, Courtney, who survived the original murders. And her dream in life is to become a musician. It it occupies her thoughts. It occupies her time. So as she's sort of... But that's never really mentioned in the first one, right? Like this is a new character trait. Yes. Okay. That's true. But you think about... And what I'm doing right now is I'm building the bridge (laughs) to our driller killer having sort of like a musical persona. Okay. Okay. So you've got, you've got this young girl who's trying to, and essentially at the end of the day, this movie is about post-traumatic stress disorder. There's no two ways about it. That's, that's what is at the heart of this movie. So you've got this young girl or this, this high schooler who's still psychologically trying to kind of put the pieces together of what she endured, uh, endured all those years ago. And her psyche is filled with with music. It's what she loves. It's kind of like when you do something during the day and then when you dream at night, you dream about the stuff you did during the day. Exactly. So as her mind is filling in the blanks of who was this guy? What was this guy that terrorized my sister and myself and, and her friends? Her psyche is sort of filling in the blanks with a sort of a musical background. And Russ Thorne, the killer from the original movie inserted himself into their lives and commanded their attention and, and demanded their love and adoration and kind of like the swagger of a front man. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they do have the, they, in this movie, they splice in shots from the first movie, like little flashbacks, but anything with Courtney is reshot, but there is the, the shot where like really all she sees of Russ Thorne or initially are just these leather boots that he's wearing walk by her. But now they've kind of been, you know, before they were just kind of like some normal, I'm not really a boot guy. So I don't know what kind of boots they were, but they were, they're just basic boots. But now you've got, you know, the, the, uh, would you call them cowboy boots? Like these leather cowboy boots with the tip and yeah. like the metal tip on the end of it. Which is far sexier than the, you know, and he's full leather. You you go from like plain boots and the denim outfit to now he's yeah he's become this leather greased hair. He's super sexy. He's sexy. He and yeah, he is. Gonna lie. No, I mean, and the thing is, like, that's one of the great parts about our our killer in this movie is that he doesn't seem to have the sort of malice and hate. He's just really enjoying the hell out of it. Right. I mean, he's, he's having a good time and he's, and he, you're right. He legitimately is the sexy dude. Yeah. Like, um, you know, I mean, he kind of, he commands the screen well and um, yeah, just a nice really, teeth. Nice yeah. Teeth. Great performance. Yeah. Excellent teeth. Yeah. Which is a, a far cry from some of the teeth that we've had to endure in some of our previous movies. Oh man. 
Yeah. Nice, uh, nice upgrade there. <laughs> so, um, so when you put all that together, the MTV generation, the girl band, a way to have four or five girls grouped together and her mind being preoccupied with this murder that she's endured or these murders and preoccupied with music. Suddenly the idea of a sort of musically flavored horror movie with a guy terrorizing her with a guitar drill doesn't really sound that far-fetched anymore. Oh, that's true. So, so there you go. I mean, I love your explanation for it. The cynical side of me was like, man, we've got like the rights to like five of these shitty songs. Like, let's just put them. <laughs> right. They're in a band, and that's how we get to do the songs. You know, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that, that could be an easy, <laughs> easily it's far more. I love the romanticism behind it. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty. <laughs> um, speaking of pretty. We've got some some good-looking folks in this cast. Yeah. Uh, yes. So this, yeah, this cast is, um, I'll, I'll say this. The women in it are very attractive. The guys in it, besides the killer, I do not think are attractive. I will admit when a man's attractive. Uh, these guys, first, let, let's go minor guys real quick. You've got cj and jeff carryover name from the first film i'm gonna refer to them as uh froggy fresh and new neil because the what the jeff guy looks like neil from the first one and cj looks like froggy fresh and if you don't know froggy fresh old internet meme guy look him up crispy creams you'll love it um those guys and 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 froggy fresh is kind of this uh surfer Dumb Mimbo, as I guess they'd say. He's kind of the dumb guy. New Neil, I didn't get a good feeling for his character at all. Um, he's just kind of there as the other guy. I w- Kudos to a movie, finally, for not fleshing out the male characters. Um, but, and then the... Uh, I think his name is Matt, who is the then like main love interest of Courtney. That guy is just i can see why someone's like here's an attractive guy he's very fit uh he's thin but uh his face just looks creepy as hell to me um (laughs) going off like his smile looks creepy his eyes look disingenuous i don't know something about that guy really put me off yeah, I, I mean, I could see that he's kind of um, he's kind of almost a little too smiley. Like he kind of like in the way that um, uh, Ryan Seacrest is sort of off-putting. Yeah, like, like, exactly. Like, he's like too normal and too adaptable to any human that he might interact with. Like it's just it's just creepy. Like there's a sort of non-personness going on there. Yeah, and he seems to be like the very popular guy in school and. And I couldn't pick up on, here's what's weird about those two as a couple. Like, I don't know. It seemed kind of forced. Like she seemed so revered and wouldn't be really be putting herself out there. Like I'm sure that guy has uh, a lot of other opportunities, shall we say, as a senior, as an attractive senior in high school to where he's not like, I don't know, I'm ready to, you know, really give things a chance with the weird girl, you know. <laughs> no, it's a good point. I will say this. Um, 
to try and save it's it like a little bit. It's like the third most attractive out of all those friends. Right. No to Crystal Bernard, you're beautiful. Everyone else in this movie is beautiful. Right. No, it's true. It's true. And and that character of Matt, yes, I, I know he does have a sort of vanilla quality that is a little suspicious. Um, but I will say this about uh, about that actor, Patrick Lowe. Um, I do feel like he played the part well. And I think that the times that he was supposed to be sure. sincere were great. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to tell you something. Wait, I is think he part of the Lowe family? No, he's not. Right. Um, he, he was asked that by the director, and, and he told her no at that time. So, um, But what I can tell you is this. You're actually onto something more than you know. Oh. Early, not, not to skip ahead to the, to the cinematic parts of this, but early on, some of the shots that we see of Matt, played by Patrick uh, Lowe, are these weird, very sort of in-your-face POV shots where we're looking directly at him. The director did that on purpose because she kind of wanted to plant the seeds of, hey, this guy seems really perfect. He seems really great, but I don't know, should we trust him? Is he really as good as, as, we're, as, as we're led to believe that he is? She wanted to give you a little bit of doubt as to whether or not he was as genuine as he's oh. supposed to come across. So obviously that worked for you because you're like, this guy's fucking creepy. Yeah. <laughs> so so well, they so, do that face to face with her and her mom as well. That's true. It's true. It it kind of it kind of throws off what the director said as far as her intention for that. <laughs> well, but, let me let me say this, Tim. I don't think this movie is directed very well. I don't know <laughs> how good she was as a director. Um because there's not a lot of risk taking, I want to say, directorially wise. Mushmouth. Uh, you do have a couple, like, so when you have these shots where they're just like dead on to each other, talking to each other, those do stand out. There's one other part where at the end, where you kind of get a POV shot of her friend Amy as Courtney's leading her through this like house that's being built. Which is weird. It's like one of the only other times you get this perspective from a different character in it. And I don't know why. There's really no point in it at that part. So it's like, it just seemed like making decisions to do something, you know? Like, I mean, it looked interesting. It was it was actually engaging. Like, it stood out to me. But I wasn't yeah, it, like, oh, here's the deeper meaning behind it, you know? Right. And I, I think that, yeah, you're, you're right. She might've abandoned that idea, but just thought that it looked cool. So kept it going. She actually, believe it or not, was contemplating early on, contemplating the idea of having whatever actor play Matt to also play the driller killer to sort of create oh. that, that confusion, that blurring. That of guy line. would have been a terrible driller. Killer. Oh yeah. The, nobody else could have played that part oh. other than Atanas. And I think I was but, saying um, CJ, I meant TJ. TJ, yes. TJ. So, wow. so yes, those are our three guys: are TJ, Jeff, and Matt. T. And with something about TJ, back in the in the eighties, when someone he he's kind of like the the stoner guy as well. And back in the eighties, the the whole stoner persona, at least in films, they hadn't really kind of used like um, deadheads or you know alternative people for that. Back in the mid '80s, mid to late '80s, they usually it was more of like a metal type person, like leather sure. jacket, cigarette, that kind of thing. That was your quote unquote stoner look 
in yeah. in the eighties. So he kind of plays the bad boy stoner. Jeff, like you mentioned, is is just supposed to be the nice guy. He doesn't have a whole hell of a lot to work with. But I will say that actor does kind of come across as sort of vanilla and nice and normal. Oh, you know, yeah. Like he, he the best the actor of the three men. Yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, boring. So let's <laughs> let's talk about our girl band. We have we have four. Do they have a name in the movie? You know what? Did they name and, themselves? No, they 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 never did. Right. They never did. That that question has been asked, and the, it, it to tell you the truth, when I heard the director's response, it almost I swear to God seemed like the first time she had ever even thought to name <laughs> right. a band. Oh. Yeah. So no, they have absolutely no name. Okay. But so good. Um, I will say yeah. that they are good. Yeah, so. they're they're. They're great at, at <laughs> they're great at, I mean, the, the music fits the time period and the actresses actually worked really, really hard and put a lot of rehearsal time into actually looking like they're, they're playing these songs. Yes. I um, noticed that there are a lot of like specific guitar riffs that I don't know if that is what it would sound like if played, but it looks like it is you know it's not like a finger's not moving when it should be moving or something or they're strumming and nothing's coming out you know all the movements look like they match even the drums which are usually the worst part right yeah no they did they did an awesome job and i love i love the fact that they took that seriously enough to say let's not just gloss over this but actually let's let's really work at it and i i think from what i've heard that it was really the actresses themselves that kind of said hey we don't want to look stupid doing this like we really want to make this look good so good for them um we've got courtney bates uh like you said the the survivor from the first film um her friend I'll, i'll say this let me jump in real quick oh sure uh, and I think I commented on this the first time we watched it on that fateful night. Uh, and I, I will also say, I don't remember a lot from that night. I do remember being like, you want to do a podcast? Um, <laughs> but I do remember commenting just just the first five minutes watching Crystal Bernard. You're like, in 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 comparison to the first movie, it's such a leap in skill in acting not that crystal bernard is like a top tier actor but you could definitely tell the step up in talent that just a crystal bernard offers you from the low budget never acted before cast of the first one like i never thought i'd be like oh crystal bernard what a breath of fresh air (laughs) no that's and that's so true though um because you know, she does do a really great job with a lot of of the um, the little bits and pieces that go into into who Courtney is. We've got we've got a girl who's who, like we said, suffering this post traumatic stress, but we've also got just a regular high school girl that's being talked to by the guy that she thinks is really cute, and she does a really good job of sort of like looking down and looking away from him and being sort of shy and cute, and she she really hits a lot of really true notes in this performance. I mean, it's, yeah. it's really great. It's she's adorable in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause in retrospect, I can't say I've ever seen her in something. I didn't like Crystal Bernard in. Yeah. And I've only seen her in this and wings. I think I can't think of any other Crystal Bernard projects I've watched, but uh, I've enjoyed her in both. 
She kind of took a leap from acting and went more into actually uh, songwriting and music. Yeah, the only song I know by her is is actually it's I believe it's a country song and I believe it's called Don't Touch Me There. Which <laughs> is actually <laughs> which kind of <laughs> is sort of falls in line with you know her televangelistic upbringing. So, I mean, yeah. good for her. So, here's now now here's a real interesting fact for you. One of the other girls in the band, Sheila Barrington. Now, Sheila's dad is the one who bought the condo that most of the action takes place in. And she's sort of our bad girl. She's redheaded. She's uh, provocative, overtly sexual, funny. Yeah, Yeah, they get in a pillow fight and she's like, perfect weapon, my bra. (laughs) Yeah. Let me take it off and snap it. Whipping you with my bra, yeah. Now, let me tell you something really fascinating about Juliet Cummings, who is the actress who plays her. Now, first of all, one exciting thing is that I was actually Facebook friends with her before she deactivated her account account, or uh, at least deactivated my access to it. (laughs) So one or the other. How many private messages did you send her? I asked her if she was uh, from Slumber Party Massacre 2. <laughs> it would be at least one. <laughs> oh, yeah. And she she very sort of coyly responded, yes, that was me all those years ago. It was a lot of fun. You know, she was, she was nice and genuine. Um, now, here's something really funny. I was researching Juliet Cummings and trying to find out a little bit more about her. The first headline that came up was actress... And this was from just two years ago. Actress Juliet Cummins puts her Hollywood party palace on the market. And I'm like, palace? Like, she only did like four movies. Right. And then I saw a picture of her house, which she is renting for $22,000 a month. 22000 a month in Los Angeles. And it is a sprawling compound. I mean, it is huge. And I said, okay. I know I rented Slumber Party Massacre 2 a lot, but I did not fund (laughs) that party palace. Those residual checks, man. So (laughs) what I found out was her father-in-law is a guy by the name of Cliff Sponsel. Cliff Sponsel, while not a a household name, invented the internal car or internal engine thermometer or thermostat before cliff sponsor came along cars would overheat and people would have to get out and put water into their radiators yeah he he was an engineer working for gm he invented which is still used to this day invented the internal car thermometer and sold it to gm who in turn sold it to every other car company except for Ford, actually, which is kind of funny. Um, But uh, so she has more money than God bless her than she knows what to do with. And, uh, but that's Sheila Barrington. She plays Sheila Barrington. Yeah. Interesting little side fact there. Then we've got Amy. Oh, sweet Amy. Oh yeah. Here's, I'm going to get creepy for a second here on Amy. Cause Okay. So, because we've already had a scene, right, where they have their their little um, pillow fight, and they're were they like spraying champagne on each other? They're getting wet yes. somehow. Okay, spraying champagne and whatever. Uh, and two of the girls take off their tops. 
uh, Sally, who we haven't talked about, and Sheila both take off their tops. Um, Courtney does not. Amy does not. Uh, so then later on, there's a scene with new Neil and Amy, and they're washing a car, and Amy's like jumping up and down, and I could not help but notice the buoyancy of her breasts. <laughs> and I was just like, what a shame she didn't get naked in this movie. So then I was like, I gotta look her up. Did she ever get naked? And lo and fucking behold, she had been in Playboy, like three times prior to this movie yes and she, she is a stunner and by the way that 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 now means that you've got fucked twice by these movies because you love jackie in the first movie and yes. she doesn't get naked yeah. and then same thing with uh kimberly MacArthur, who plays the amy and yes you're right i mean call it creepy i call it just appreciating the human form first of all she has she has like a really demure face like kind of like a thin I mean, she's very pretty in the face oh, very pretty. But, but but usually like the sort of a delicacy of her face is not typically synonymous with that amount of endowment <laughs> that, that she carries but she is a stunner she is gorgeous and and not only that but a, i think a great actress i mean she really yeah, does a nice she was really good and i can only imagine she had gotten to some point in her career where she's like i don't do that anymore Yes, and in, in fact, you're you're a thousand percent right because she did the spreads in Playboy, and when approached uh, and auditioning for this film, she absolutely refused to do nudity because she wanted to move past that. So you're a hundred percent right. Okay, and good for uh, her. And, good for yeah, her. good on and her. And I'm glad yeah. that she also did the Playboy for yes know, for historical reference context. Yeah. <laughs> um, then we move on to Sally. Um, Sally's kind of like she's our drummer. She's our surfer girl, valley girl, um, kind of earthy, but at the same time, kind of ditzy. Yeah, um, basically like like your typical surfer girl, played by Heidi too Kozak. Much, yeah, Heidi. Ko- sorry, I talked over you there. Uh, played by Heidi Kozak. She looks too much like uh, Kim from the first movie. Like they, they. Yeah, I feel like they look very similar. Yes. Yeah. No, you're right. You're 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 exactly right. And. And the other thing about her, I think Heidi does, the actress does a fine job with the role. Um, I mean, she's fun to watch because she's just so bubbly and and kooky. Something kind of interesting, though, is that she does sort of disappear for a a good section of the movie, maybe, you know, 15 minutes of screen time. Turns out that while they did work it into the plot, it's also that just that the actress had something that she had to do. (laughs) Like she had some some family thing to do or whatever. So they wrote it into the script. Cause, yeah, because yeah, when she disappears, it's it's one of these because we're kind of in the second act of the film, and a lot of uh, Courtney's dreams are starting to manifest themselves in in her real life, where she's at least hallucinating that they're happening. And and um, Sally keeps talking about the zit on her face, and so then while Courtney's talking to her, the zit, you know, each camera cut is larger and larger to where now it's just this grotesque face and it just, this zit explodes all over Courtney and Courtney immediately is like, she's dead. She's dead and then they can't find her. Right. Which, which is an odd, it was odd that Sally would leave. Like if I was talking to you and you flipped out and like ran away crying, I wouldn't be like, well, perfect opportunity for me to go to the store. 
I'd be like, someone finds him, make sure he's okay. Unless she was so worried about that zit and saw Courtney running and screaming away from her that she's like, fuck, I got to get some oxy. Right. Like now. (laughs) So, but you're right. It is a little abrupt. And also like, would that be the first like reaction? Would you say that somebody's dead just because I mean, don't get me wrong. Like this zit is horrific. Yeah. Like she wouldn't say dead. No, no, I would not be like that killed him. All of her, uh, his life force of pus has been drained from his body. <laughs> no one can live without that much pus. Second to, uh, second to probably one specific element that we're about to get to in a second. Um, that's probably the most known or remembered shot from the movie. Um, yeah. Second to uh, an, another singular element that we're about to get to, because we're talking about our driller killer. Yes. Um, who and while there are other are some other members of the cast, there is uh, an actress who plays Valerie, uh, who it, kind of in these dream sequences or hallucinations. We have Courtney's mom in a couple uh, brief scenes yeah. in the beginning. Not a big cast. Oh yeah, no. the rest of the cast, like total filler names. A, you have two cops, Officer Kruger and Officer Voorhees. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> I, I dig like an homage. But then you have you have one guy who comes out because uh, they try to go to a neighbor's house and then they leave. And when he comes out, he's like, damn kids. That guy is credited as Mr. Damn Kids. <laughs> it's so perfect. They yeah. had and they had some fun in the credits of this movie. That's that's not the only little trick up their sleeve. Uh, there's one at the at the very, very end of the credits as well with the FBI warnings. It's kind of fun. Oh, what's um, that say? Uh, it says that if you don't follow the rules of, you know, not reproducing the movie and blah, 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 all those FBI warnings that you will receive a midnight visit from the driller killer. Oh, it says like a $500,000 fine, like it always says $500,000 fine prosecution and a midnight visit from the driller killer. (laughs) Um, it's kind of cool. Speaking of, uh, here he is the driller killer played by Atanas Illich. Um, and this guy, like like we've alluded to earlier, s- all the swagger in the world. I mean, and, and it comes naturally. Uh, he was the first person that uh, was that auditioned for the role. Um, Deborah Brock didn't really think that he was the way to go. She loved him, but she kind of pictured somebody sort of like large and big in stature, playing yeah. this sort of overbearing, Pretty um, broad like, though. Broad man. Yeah, he is. He is. He's, he's certainly athletic. I mean, the guy can dance. And, yeah. um, but yeah. He does really, a jump into the splits. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, he really, like, you had to take ownership of this part because, you know, in some research I found out, it's, it's not like they had a dance choreographer in this movie. It was literally a Tanis Illich and the director that. saying, Let's let this looks cool. Let, why don't I do the splits? Right. So he really kind of choreographed himself along with with the director. So Atanas Illich, um, here here I was one day, worried just in my own little world, worried about. Gosh, I I wonder if that guy who played the driller killer is just just lonely and depressed and barely getting by on Skid Row because right. I never saw him do anything else. Well. Turns out that his family owns the city of Detroit. (laughs) And along with that, Little Caesars Pizza, his father actually founded Little Caesars, uh, Mike Illich. And um, 
along with uh, having ownership of the Detroit Tigers with the Red Wings. The Red Wings yeah. Yeah. And so he uh, he's doing just fine. But originally he did try to strike out on his own, went out to L.A. and cut an album called, I believe it's called Sugar Summer. And um, he so he was a singer. And, um, you know, so he had a musical background, probably made him a really good fit for this. And um, he wields one of the most iconic weapons in all of horror history. And that is the beloved guitar drill. Yeah. Is that what it's referred to as? Like, well, canonically? It, yeah, I think so. It actually had a Makita drill brand drill inside of it. There were three different guitars that they used for, for different shots, but the main one had a drill built into the back of it. Okay. Um, so it actually, it actually did turn and, um, it was eventually sold on eBay. The director had it in her closet, figured she'd give it to somebody that would appreciate it more and sold it on eBay. Um, but yeah, it is this ultimate. I mean, you want to talk about phallic. There's a real drill in there? Because yeah. there are some shots where that thing looks like garbage. Like, like that drill is not either centered or like slotted very well. Like the tip of that thing is wobbling from here to Saskatoon. <laughs> no, you're right They're, especially those shots at the end it's oh. kind of almost looks like tinfoil yeah i'm like the thing's uh, gonna break off yeah and i i think that that is i think that that's like um one of the more stunt like when they were doing more movement more running around uh-huh. but yeah when they for the actual like close-up shots and stuff it actually had a little makita brand drill in the back of it that that operated the the drill bit so, um, yeah, super iconic, super phallic, way over the top, bright red, you know, this sort of like tribal looking little, you know, other sort of phallic bits and points coming off of oh, it in yeah. a giant drill. I mean, it looked it, like it, the guitar itself was dangerous. Like the drill was a dangerous part, but you could have impaled <laughs> right. yourself on any part of this guitar. Right. And, and Atanas, when he was, was first kind of messing around with it, um, you know, kind of working with some moves and, and practicing with it spun around and the strap on it broke and all of that filigree, all of those fine points just shattered. And he was absolutely like devastated and thought he was going to get fired, but you know, they just made another one. So, and God bless him for doing it. So, so yeah, so that's, that's our, we've got our cast, we've got our weapon and, um, the thing is, from, from here on out, and I, I know that we've sworn to cut down on our use of the word fun, but we're not talking about fun. We're not talking about it in our appreciation of the movie. We're talking about it in, with respect to how this cast went about this movie. The, if you listen to, the, to Deborah Brock talk about the movie and the actors and actresses talk about the movie, they weren't really concerned with lots of linear logic a lot of people have really tried to wrap their minds around this movie and make sense of every single thing that happens from beginning to end. And if you hear these people talk about this movie, there's, there's, it's so infused with fun. They talk about there was an 18-hour cast party that went nonstop. Wow. Um, That's what I'm it, talking about. They, and and the, the means by which they filmed under total like guerrilla style filmmaking they didn't have permits they're buying fake police hats so that they don't get harassed by real police while they're filming 
they had filmed on the set that they were filming in in the condo. They had just got done making a movie, another Roger Corman movie called The Nest, which is all about cockroaches. So there were cockroaches all over the place <laughs> left over from that movie. And um, you've just got, you've got uh, these people that were basically just doing it for the fun of it. They're all young. They're all energetic. Um, I mean, they're filming in like Roger Corman's friend's house. He bought a lumber yard and they were building sets just right there in the lumber yard and the, the sort of outbuildings or warehouse buildings they had there. Um, you know, it's, it was a lot of just the energy that, that comes out in the film isn't just from the story or the characters. I think a lot of it really comes from the fun that the cast was having and the energy that it took to put it all together. Yeah. So I'll agree with that. I did. You can get a, a feeling from them that they're having fun doing it. No one's phoning anything in. We'll say that like they are going, but not, they're not like hamming it up, you know? Right. And they're and they're Even definitely the driller killer. I wouldn't say is being hammy. He's acting within the the sphere of this world that Courtney is creating him in. Exactly, and yeah, and it is it is um it it is it's it's similar to actually a, a play that that uh, that we are both very familiar with, Woman in Mind. Kind of like the these characters that get created just out of somebody's imagination, and sure. so that kind of gives you free reign to to really be as over the top or entertaining as you want to be. And they really went for entertainment. The, the estimate isn't perfect, but I have heard the word or the number the figure 500 gallons of blood, like literally 500 gallons of blood used in this movie. Wow. So, um, you know, they, they just really went for it. Also, this movie features the, at, at least at the time, the highest on fire stunt fall in film history. So to have a stuntman on fire and falling, free falling from a building, right. that was a record. Because so, the Thriller Killer's main weakness is fire. Apparently. <laughs> so she touches him with a welding torch and he goes up like he's been bathing in acetone. <laughs> right. And it's and it's kind of funny because I guess it like we we were just saying, I mean I knew he was a greaser, but come on. Right. <laughs> right. There's some other products you can use. I mean, even in 1987, you got dippity doo you can put in there. I mean, or whatever, you know, some white rain. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, but, but kind of along those lines though, we're talking about, you know, what does kill this guy? Where does this guy come from? And uh, I know that we can't, you know, go into too much detail about it. Other than, you know, we're, we're, we could talk for hours about the psychology of this movie. Yeah. But at the, at the end of the day, we've got a, a young woman who had this blossoming sexuality as a middle schooler, which was stunted by this traumatic incident that happened. So in her mind, the idea of actually, quote unquote, going all the way, which is referenced a lot in the movie, um, that sex equals her sort of losing control of of this situation that she's trying to work her way through uh, mentally. Right. And so there, like in so many horror movies, you know, sex, I don't know if it necessarily equals death in this movie, but it equals a sort of loss of control. Like yeah. letting well, and she oh, is warned. Don't go all the way. Like her sister and her visions is saying, don't go all the way. Uh, I feel like someone else says it too. 
or is it maybe not? Well, he has he has the the driller killer himself has a really interesting line where he says, "I am you, and you are me until we go all the way." Oh. And it's kind of it's it's kind of like saying like I'm going to be with you on forever until you completely let me go. But she's terrified that having sex and letting him go will somehow she'll lose her grip on him and, and go completely crazy. Right. Like by, by stunting her sexuality, by stifling herself, she's able to kind of shove him down mentally. But if she goes and have sex, has sex and falls in love and goes on with her life and forgets about him, then maybe he'll come get her again, okay. which, is exact, which is exactly what happens. Um, yes. And now let's touch on this ending real quick because we got to wrap up real, uh, pretty soon here. Because yeah. um, I did have, I do have a slight issue with it because and this is my, you know, pretentiousness coming out, I'm sure. But cuz I'm kind of down with oh, she has manifested this guy uh and now he's actually alive in the real world like she's like pulled him out of her dream like Nancy does with Freddy or whatever, you know. I can get behind that as I know that cannot happen in real life. However, so she finally, you know, battles the driller killer, they fight um and now he's been burnt she wakes up she's in bed with matt or whatever creepy guy's name is uh uh-huh. and so she goes to kiss him it turns out he, oh no he is the driller killer and then she wakes up again and now she's in uh uh insane asylum she's in she's institutionalized like her sister we thought was this whole time so now I'm still on board. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. All this is in her mind. I'm not super big on it was all a dream, but that's fine. Like this is something internally she's still dealing with. Cool. I'm still down. And then the last two seconds, you got to have that dumb drill coming up through the floor in the insane asylum. Now I'm like, well, wait, now is this still a dream? Has she manifested him still, but within the asylum? And then it cuts. Now I'm like frustrated. Right. Am I overthinking it? Am I no, no, I no, no, no. I was frustrated and trying to wrap my mind around this before the internet age for years. tortured by this i just hate you can't that even... need that horror movies have of we need that last very last sting that doesn't make sense but is just a cheap thrill like you don't need a, the cheap thrill at the very end you being could locked a... in an institution is horrifying enough right you could you could make a case if this makes you sleep better tonight you could make the case for she's in the institution we see the drill coming up and what we're seeing is maybe a hallucination of hers Okay. <laughs> so, That's but funny. yes, you're and and when the director is asked about the very things that that you have a problem with, she is it kind of reverts back to the like, hey, it's it's whatever you want it to be. There's there's one theory you could go with that it's it's more based in reality. There's another one that was all a dream. So, I think at that point she was just kind of stylistically letting go of the reins and having a little fun. Yeah, so, I know it's kind of unavoidable. It's, you know, it's not the first or last movie that will ever do that. So right. it's just my small complaint in, in a movie that was okay. <laughs> I know it's your favorite movie. <laughs> I do. I do. I love it. I love it. Um, do How much, how crunched are we for time? So, I know okay. you want to talk about your favorite movie. Yes. So... <laughs> 
I'm just going to say this. As we if were no one's having... garnered from this episode so far. <laughs> Tim <laughs> likes to talk about this movie. I do. I do. And, and not only was I fascinated by the movie, as I always have been, but I was trying to figure out what is it that makes uh, any piece of art resonate with any one person so so intensely. And I actually started to research a little bit about art appreciation. And it turns out that there's this whole multi-layered field of study on how people react and the different types of reactions and categorizations that people have for how they react to art. And I I stumbled across this thing that was called aesthetic chills. And it, it talks about like when you hear a piece, for me, I get it a lot with classical music. Like if you hear a real stirring piece of classical music and you feel a sort of swelling or welling up inside you, um, that that again, there's this whole sort of world of analyzing why we we respond so strongly to to any given piece of art. When you think about it with with regard to movies, there are so many separate individuals with different sets of talent, different sets of creative ideas that are all being infused into one product. So when you're really affected by a movie, you're not really being affected by one singular entity, like, I really like that movie. What I think is probably happening is, is that you've got this internal checklist of all of these separate things. For me, it was like with this movie, like female energy. Like I've always really been attracted to female energy. I love music. I love, I love sexuality. And there's a lot of sexiness in this movie. Um, I love, uh, you know, the excitement and sort of the, the fast pace, uh, just fun quality, like upbeat quality of this movie. So what's happening for me to really like this movie, I don't really think it's just one singular thing. It's kind of like a film when you really start to, to study it and you realize how much goes into just one movie, you realize that it is like this controlled chaos, this explosion that just stops in a freeze frame. Like all of these separate elements that combine to make one particular recipe. And so when you feel, what I'm getting at is when you feel something, when you feel that connection to a movie, it's probably so many different little isolated separate things that are reacting to who you are as a person that it just, when you feel that feeling, it doesn't feel like that. It just feels like, wow, I feel drawn to this. I feel connected to it. And so that's what I think why I think this movie resonates so much with me is that it's not just because of a cool guitar drill or anything else. (laughs) It's all these little separate pieces that, that just match up with who I am as a person. And so I know what I like. I am interested to find out what horror movie it is that affects you that way. Um, in that way, because we all have our own little checklist of, of stimuli that we're going to respond to. And that's, that's the beauty of film. So, um, yeah. You're not asking me to answer that right now, are you? No, we're going to find it. (laughs) We're going to find that movie. You'll, you'll know it when you feel it. I mean, so far I'd say it's Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, that I've, I've loved that movie since, you know, the first time I remember seeing it was a, we had friends, uh, family friends over and with all these older boys, they put on HBO and it's like, like Nancy's main dream sequence. Like she's trying to get up the stairs and going through it. I was 
mesmerized and my brother told on us that we were watching it the parents came in may have started off and like from that moment i was like enraptured with just the idea of it uh like what a frightening just idea someone could kill you through your brain in your sleep so it's so far it's that well, yeah, and I, that makes sense to me for knowing you because you also really like a good story. I mean, you were ever since, you know, we were, you know, in our teens, you were taking some of your own time to read Stephen King's short stories or all of them and um, and really invested in great, great stories. And that's the thing about Nightmare is that it created its own super unique mythology. Oh, and yeah. it is it's fucking captivating. Yeah. It really is. So that makes sense. Well, excellent. Well, uh, cool. I think that that about wraps it up on this one. I, I think <laughs> this went pretty well. I'll, you know, in, in case the average listener can't tell, we're out of the garage studio right now. We're on the Zuma studio uh, doing this over the headsets because of COVID. But I think it went pretty well. It it feels good. I mean, I'm I'm thrilled to get back uh, into your loving arms. Uh, you know, whenever whenever. <laughs> I will the say time... this is the most detailed I've seen your face since like April. <laughs> right, right, exactly. It's normally across the garage. So right, right. A good shot. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I think it went well. We'll we'll, we'll be back in normal. But you know, we wanted to at least get some episodes going again. Quantity over quality, I think. But I think it went okay. And I look forward to doing a movie uh, that I know some stuff about, too. So <laughs> you can see there's, there's some crosstalk problems. <laughs> you know, we're going to find – you know, one of these days we're going to do uh, – can you believe we haven't done The Shining yet? Uh, yeah. Well, we did Clockwork, so well, I'm that's true. jump into another Kubrick too quickly. Yeah. But true, that would true. be one I would love to do. I mean – Oh, yeah. Talk about pretentious. <laughs> get out yes. of town um but i will okay so uh i i will say this having our little hiatus i did want to jump in real quick with some quick corrections because i was i was perusing some older episodes of ours uh two things jumped out at me one toby hooper is dead i think in one episode we were talking about how he reacted to something. No, he's dead. He did not react to it at all. Uh, shame on us <laughs> for not remembering that. Uh, also from the Chud episode, uh, we meant acronym, not anagram. I think we said yeah. anagram a hundred thousand times. In that I felt episode. really smart when I was saying it. Though. I know. And you said it, I was like, yeah, that's right. That's it. <laughs> and then, you know, two seconds in my wife's like, do you mean acronym? I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> I'm sure it's the only time we do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so maybe that'll be a new feature on the show, our corrections, <laughs> corrections and omissions. Uh, okay, cool. So that was 1987's Slumber Party Massacre Part 2. No subtitle to it, which is odd. They wanted, they, yeah, they wanted it to be "Don't Let Go," but I mean, oh. they 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 just settled on the fact that Slumber Party Massacre 2 sounds rad enough. Yeah, All and right. it does. Well, and I'll say this was going to be – we did this because it was going to be your birthday when we had originally planned on doing it. 
Uh, so we're doing it now. And uh, so then I was like, well, I never got a birthday episode either. Cause my birthday's in May. So I got to pick a birthday episode. And that's what we're going to be doing next week. We're going to do uh, – we're going to jump jump up into the modern age. We're doing – from 2018, we're doing Hereditary, which I have only seen once. I saw it on a plane and I was sucked in hard. Uh, so I can't wait to revisit that one. I know you like it, but you're iffy. So I'm uh, excited about you rewatching it. And hopefully we'll have some dissension on it. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no, I, I want, I, well, first, first things first, I want to like it where I didn't like it. And if I still don't like it, then I want to tell you why I don't like it and see if, if I can be convinced otherwise. I'm open to it. I, I, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm missing something. We'll I'm find down out. with that. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, I can't wait for that. That's going to be next week. Uh, please, if you uh, would like to email us. Oh, we did get a uh, email. It was a recommendation. And I think probably Ooh. future episode, The Cell from Superfan Mikey. He suggested The Cell. Uh, I love that movie. Yeah. Vincent D'Onofrio. Vince Vaughn and uh, J Lo, yeah, in probably her best movie, that or yeah. the Wedding Planner. I don't know. <laughs> Remember U Turn? She was good in U Turn. Wait, was well, she like U Turn? Yeah, yeah, she was the girl. She was what? like the girl. She was the, with the long hair and the the girl. That's Jennifer Lopez. Uh oh my god! Yeah, Wait, with uh Paul Walker. See that movie? No, no, no. Oh, yeah, there is another U-turn. That's right. No, U-turn. Are you thinking with of the Bob Steven Thornton. Soderbergh movie? No, U-turn with uh, with Billy Bob Thornton and um, and uh, oh, and uh, Sean Penn. It was it was actually um, Oliver Stone. Movie. Oliver Stone took a break from in the middle of uh, Natural Born Killers, and he said, "Man, I need a break. I'm just going to go make another movie over here." <laughs> And, and he made U-turn, and then he went back and finished. All right, I gotta go yeah. look that movie up. I'm sure yes. once I watch a trailer, I'll be like, "Oh, right." But I'm get, didn't have really the legs. I'm sure they hoped that it would have. But anyway, so please, uh, if you have questions, you want to point out we're not using the right terms for acronyms or things like that, please email us at slumberpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Slumber Podcast Massacre. Our Patreon, patreon.com slash slumberpodcastmassacre. Thank you so much to our patrons. Uh, you help uh, pay for hosting sites and things like that, and it makes it a little easier to do this. Uh, we're going to be back now with the Zoom. I doubt we'll be doing any more hiatuses until we're done with this show. That's my promise to you. Boom. The listener. Um, so, yeah, that was it. Uh, Timmy, you got anything else to say about this movie? Well, I would just say that if our dear listeners out there don't tell their friends about Slumber Podcast Massacre and this episode or any other of our episodes, that they will get a midnight visit from the Driller Killer. You've been warned. See you, Timmy. See ya. See ya.